Welcome to Monsters Among Us. I am your guide, Derek Hayes. Three years ago tonight, I sat down in a tent I created in my garage out of an old dirty moving blanket I found on a leftover film set. I knew I had something to say about the subject of the paranormal, but I also knew it wasn't going to be a blanket statement. I wanted to investigate witness by witness, searching for patterns, similarities, synchronicities. The weird thing is that people actually tuned in. Not by the dozens, as I expected. Not by the hundreds, as I'd hoped. And not even by the thousands, as I'd never imagined. This show has received well over 3 million total downloads. 3 million. And we're extremely close to 4 million, let's be honest. The very thought of that is downright stupefying. To imagine that 3 million people have listened to this voice... To listen to the harebrained ideas that this mind has created. It just blows blows me away. Now, of course, I could not have done any of that without each of you. Writing, calling, and most of all, listening. So a humongous thank you to all of you amongsters. And speaking of support, this ship would have been lost at sea years ago without my awesome team. So here's a quick message from them. Hey kids, it's Addie here with the Monsters Among Us Facebook fan page. And a wise man once told me I'm a little bit long-winded. So I'm going to keep this short and sweet. I want to be the first person to wish a happy anniversary, a happy birthday to the best podcast out there. It has been three great years and here's to many, many more. Happy birthday, Monsters Among Us. Hey Derek, it's Warren. I just wanted to wish you and the Monsters Among Us podcast a happy three-year anniversary. This show has meant a lot to me, and I have loved it from episode one when I got hooked up uh, on that very first phone call. Uh, And I want to say thank you to you for making it such a fantastic show, to Addie and Anthony for all that they do. And to all of the other fans out there who, like myself, uh, look forward to the new episodes every week and keep you going. Uh, I hope to listen to this show for many years to come. So, happy anniversary, man. Keep up the great work. Hi, this is Tony. I was actually calling in to wish Monsters Among Us a very, very happy birthday slash anniversary, whatever you want to call it. It's been a great ride so far. Derek, you do a great job. Addie, you do a great job. Warren, you do a great job. Congrats, everybody. Let's keep it going. Thank you guys so much for the kind words. And again, thank you all for tuning in and making these past three years simply incredible. Now, enough rambling. Let's get on to the show. Tonight's first story comes to us out of the state of Vermont, and this may or may not be a dogman call. The following was submitted anonymously. Hi Derek. I started listening a couple of months ago, and am finally getting caught up. I recently heard the segment with Kevin from Vermont and his experience with the dog-like creature. I also live in Vermont about an hour northeast of the area Kevin had been in and had a strange experience with a dog-like creature a few months ago. 
Around the end of December 2018, I was up late watching movies. I'll admit it was the Harry Potter series, so monsters may have already been on my mind. I got up for a drink a little after midnight and happened to look out of my kitchen window. To give you an idea, I live on the end driveway leading out of a pretty tightly packed neighborhood, and from my kitchen I can see the entire cul-de-sac. One of my windows directly faces the road, and a small stand of pine trees on the other side. Just past the trees is a bank of mailboxes, and then the end of the driveway. The whole stretch is maybe about 100 yards long, so it's easy to see all the way from the house to the main road, and there are streetlights that light up most of it. As I was passing the window, I noticed a small herd of deer come out of the trees, walking along the road and around the mailboxes. I stopped to watch them as they wandered down the drive, then across the main road and up a hill out of sight. I stayed by the window for a minute because it was a beautifully clear night and I was trying to see if there were any stars visible through the streetlights. There were not, however there was a full moon. I watched the sky for a minute unsuccessfully, then looked down at the road again to see a massive dog running straight down the center of it. My first thought was, holy crap, that's a big coyote. <laughs> I've lived in Vermont my entire life, and we've got coyotes all over up here. It's not unusual to see them running through town or through neighborhoods like mine, but this thing was huge, easily two or three times the size of a normal coyote, closer to the size of a full-grown Newfoundland. Also, it was alone. It's pretty unusual to see a lone coyote. They tend to prefer packs or at least pairs. The dog ran right over to the trees where I'd seen the deer come into the road a few minutes before. Again, I figured it was a wicked big coyote tracking his dinner. I stood still so I didn't spook him and watched it nose around for a few seconds. Then it stood up. It seemed to curl its shoulders up like it was stretching then used its front feet to push itself upright. On its back legs, it came to the lower branches of the pines, which are nearly six feet off the ground. I've seen dogs stand to sniff a tree before, and once more assumed that it was tracking something. I expected it would hop back to all fours and roll on from there. Instead, it turned its head over its shoulder, looked right at me through the window, and walked away on its back legs. As I mentioned, the road is about a hundred yards long. The dog thing walked upright as far as the end of the driveway. It stopped to sniff the top of the mailbox bank, so all in all it must have been on its back legs about 10 or 15 seconds. When it reached the main road it dropped back down, stepped out into the road and disappeared. I'm still not sure if it might have simply loped away into the dark or if it did vanish. But from where I was standing, one second it was there, and the next it was not. I asked my dad the next day if he'd seen anything like this before. He spends a lot of time in the woods, so if there's anything weird up there, I figured he'd know about it. He mentioned that in the woods near their house, about a mile from mine, he'd seen very large dog prints in the snow that are staggered, like it's walking on its back legs. They went about 50 or 100 or so yards, then disappeared. He'd seen them back around the end of January that year, so almost 11 months before the dogman on the road. Of course, it could have been an extremely large coyote, or even a wolf. They're not common here, but not unheard of. A wolf would certainly be more likely to travel alone and be that size than a coyote. Still, I can't quite explain how it walked upright as far as it did without seeming to have any trouble with it. I'd have to imagine that the unnatural movement would be difficult for a large dog with a lot of weight to balance. But this one did it smoothly and easily. It also wouldn't explain the tracks in the snow unless it made a habit of walking that way. I don't know of any reason a canine would prefer to walk on two legs rather than four. After hearing Kevin's story from not too far away, I'm more inclined to believe that whatever I saw wasn't your average wild dog. Thanks for the awesome podcast. I love the incredible variety of stories and your devil's advocate view. I'd be interested to hear if you or anyone else knows about dogs walking upright without a full moon, or if there's a natural explanation for this one. Thank you, caller, for sharing. Now, since our caller brought this up, I thought it'd be pertinent to share Kevin's encounter from Vermont. I believe this aired on Season 3, Episode 7. So here's his call. 
Hi, Derek. Uh, my name is Kevin. Um, I live in Vermont. It was 2016 uh, when I had my encounter with a, a weird animal that I really have no explanation for. My wife and I had just moved into a house that we were renting at the time in Chittenden, Vermont. It was December, I want to say 13th or 14th, somewhere in that neighborhood. You know, I'll run into Walmart before they close. It was like 9.30 when I left my house. So I figured I'll run in, I'll grab a headset, I'll come back home, and I'll play for a bit longer. I was on my way in. As I come around the corner, my headlights hit this animal in the road that I, again, I have no explanation for what it was. It was, uh, it was huge. Uh, it was down on all fours. The length of it from the tip of its snout, I guess you'd call it, to the end of its like rear end kind of area, it took up the entire uh, lane that I was in. So the, this is a big animal. It stood about, I'd say, maybe three and a half to four feet at the shoulders. Well, kind of like a medium to dark gray color fur. It was built like a hyena, I would say. It had a real, real big head. had a, a hump at the shoulders, kind of like what a hyena has. And as it went back from the back to the back legs, it sloped down slightly. It, uh, oh, sorry. Um, <laughs> the, uh, the rear legs were definitely dog-like. Uh, the front legs were even dog-like. Um, the front legs didn't have paws on them. They were um, they were closer to hands, not like human hands, but almost like like raccoon paws. You know, you could tell they they kind of look like hands, but they're still kind of paws, but they look like they can grip and stuff. The eyes, when my headlights hit it, were like an amber yellow color. The ears were almost German Shepherd like, where they came to a point, but it wasn't a real sharp point like a Doberman's. I didn't take a shot at it because I honestly thought that. If I were to have stepped out of my vehicle and given this thing a chance to come near me, I wouldn't be making this phone call right now. So it's obvious that there's something strange going on in the woods of Vermont. Now, I've never been to Vermont myself. It's one of the few regions of the country that I've actually never spent time in. But one day that will change. And when that does change, you better believe I'll be looking for Dogman. Thanks again to our caller, and thank you again to Kevin for his original call. And speaking of Kevin, and speaking of coincidences, Kevin actually reached back out to me just a couple of weeks ago to let me know that he started his own paranormal podcast based on his encounter. But for more on that, here's Kevin himself. I'm Kevin C. I'm Kevin H. I'm Seth. And this is the Dark, Dark Windows, Windows Podcast. podcast. On this show, we cover true crime, cryptids, spooky stuff, and just about everything in between. You can find us just about anywhere you find podcasts and over at our home at ageofradio.org forward slash dark windows. So be sure to check out Kevin's show if you're caught up on Monsters Among Us episodes. Now for our next story of the day, we move over to yet another unknown submission. The following comes to us from Parts Unknown. So I'm hoping to drum up stories from similar people and illuminate others to the fact they aren't alone. The research on sliders is very minimal, but the fact there are people claiming consistent, similar phenomenon says something about it overall. For a long time I didn't think much of the odd behavior of street lights or occasionally indoor lights. I'd near a street light, look at one from a slight distance or drive under one and have it shut off and I'd think to myself, oh, the light broke. On a few occasions, it was, oh, the light turned back on. Even fewer, a light that had turned off when I drove through it earlier remained off until specifically I drove through it again. No other cars had seemed to make the light return. I did try to rationalize it. It didn't even register for a while, as stated. But once I'd done it so many times, noting broken lights that I had some interaction or proximity to, it became odd to me. As to whether or not it occurs during emotional turmoil, I've only recently considered that aspect and haven't paid much attention. I certainly considered the obvious, lights simply breaking, but the consistency and frequency of the occurrence across different lights, and even the same lights, made it seem unlikely. I, I can't do it on command, but it's been more frequent lately. I'm a healthy skeptic. I love out-of-the-box solutions to things, but I try to debunk first rather than get interested in a false confirmation. This has been going on for years. If it's just coincidence, 
and particularly involving the lights that seemed to respond only to me even when other cars have driven by. And because of the sheer number of times it's happened, it's one heck of a coincidence. Thank you. Thank you, caller. Now, this phenomenon was featured in a sightings episode from that long-running series. I remember it well as a child. I would share the video here, but they really didn't uncover anything unusual. Someone claimed that they could turn off and on street lamps just simply by looking at them. But when the sightings crew took them into the field to demonstrate their power, surprisingly, they were unable to replicate it. Now, I myself have experienced street lamps going off as I approach them. But in my mind, it had more to do with my headlights than any supernatural power. You see, most of these lights are fitted with sensors that activate the light once the sensor has determined it is dark enough. Your passing headlights, especially when there's particulates in the air, such as dust or water, triggers the sensor, making it believe it is daylight outside. Now, of course, I'm not privy to the inner workings of these sensors, but it's also possible that once triggered, the sensors won't activate again for some time. A bit of a reset button, if you will. Now, this would keep the light off for some time once the car passed by. Now, of course, I cannot verify the latter part of that claim, but it is consistent with other similar electronics. Now, that does not factor in the lighting found indoors that our caller mentioned. That's something completely different altogether. Thank you again, caller, for taking the time to share that story. Now here's where things get a bit strange. In light of our recent roundtable discussion on the documentary series Hellier, in which I was involved, I thought I'd point out a few strange synchronicities that happened to me while writing this show. But instead of telling you about it, I thought I would take a step further and actually show you. So to kick off that string of strange coincidences, the following call is Ariel's from the state of Indiana. I'm not sure if it's a ghost story or not, but it's pretty strange, and I've tried to research scientific reasons for why this happened, so maybe it is a ghost story. Um, when I was about 14, my older siblings were pretty much all out of the house at that point, so I was kind of like an only child. And my mom had been married to my stepdad for a few years, and we lived in a house where, I'll just give you the layout of the house and then I'll make sense more in my story later. When you walk into the living room, there's like a half wall that would divide the kitchen and the living room. And then if you walk through the kitchen, there's a hallway and down the hallway would be a bedroom and then kind of like another guest room. It's just like a large room that we used as a guest room. And on that half wall between the living room and the kitchen was a fish tank. I loved fish. I was just a 14-year-old kid, but I had babied this fish tank for years. I spent all my money on this fish tank. I would go to the aquarium store, get my water tested, pick out different fish, um, named my fish. They all had different personalities. I just absolutely loved this fish tank. It was just a hobby of mine. And it was about 25-gallon fish tank, so not incredibly huge, but substantial size. One day, it was just a, I think it was like on a Saturday, my parents were out of town and I was, you know, being 14, they were fine to leave me for the day. They weren't going to be gone overnight or anything. You know, having experienced so many different ghostly experiences or spirit experiences, I never liked being home by myself. So I kind of holed up in the back guest room where the computer was. And this is back in the day of, you know, AOL instant message. So I'm back there on the computer and I had my dog in the room with me. She was a hundred pound mutt. Um, very protective, but also just like the sweetest dog ever. So I felt safe having her back there with me. And then the only other pet we had beside my fish tank was a cat. So I had the cat there with me and my dog with me and I'm on the computer. And so that was like my way of not feeling so uncomfortable being home alone. So I'm just on the computer messaging with friends and I hear this explosion it, I mean, it sounds kind of funny to just say it, but it's, I mean, it literally sounded like boom, just this bomb explosion I, inside the house. 
my first thought was that my fish tank had somehow fallen off the, that half wall. So I jump up out of the computer chair and I start to run down the hallway and I'm immediately imagining, okay, I could probably save my fish. I could scoop them up and throw them into, you know, a cup or something. There's probably going to be glass everywhere. I'm already trying to plan on how to save my fish. That was the only thing I could think of to hear this huge explosion. And I get to the kitchen um, and I see my fish tank. It's still on the wall, the half little half wall. And I'm like, oh, okay, thank God. And I look down on the ground and covering the span of the kitchen is... Um, these just tiny shards of glass everywhere and the kitchen from the half wall to like the wall with the sink and the kitchen is probably about 10 or 12 feet, um, all over the countertops on the other side of the wall from that little half wall is just teeny tiny shards of glass everywhere. I mean, within a 15 foot radius, there is just covered in glass on the countertop and the sink all over the floor. And I look And below the fish tank were some shelves that faced into the kitchen. And my mom's father was a barber. And in his barber shop, he had used all of these little glass bottles for just different aftershaves or creams or oils or whatever he used in his barber shop. Um, They were beautiful, very decorative blue bottles you know, different shapes. Some had long skinny necks. They were hand painted. Um, just one of my mom's most favorite treasured items. And she had them displayed on the shelf, on these shelves. And I see all this glass over and I realized that those are his bottles from his barbershop. They just had exploded and were all over the entire kitchen. And the strange thing is, is that the base, the circular base of each bottle was still on the shelf exactly where the bottles had been placed. So there were three shelves and altogether about 12 or 15 different bottles that were no longer on the shelf that had been exploded and just were shattered all over the kitchen. And the circular base of each one of the bottles was still on the shelf exactly where they had been placed, not glued there or placed, you know, stuck there. Um, They were just resting there exactly where they, you know, my mom had put them. Needless to say, I was completely freaked out. Um, I had mentioned earlier, my mom had married my stepdad a few years before this. So I called, they were out of town um, and I knew they weren't going to be able to come and, you know, come home anytime soon. I don't remember where they were at exactly, but I just knew they weren't accessible to come and get me immediately. So I called my stepsister um, who was at her mom's house and my my stepsister's mom came over immediately and picked me up. Um, and she walked in, she didn't have an explanation for how all of these glass bottles had exploded. She kind of helped me sweep up the mess a little bit. Um, after this incident, of course I did try to do some research on what could make glass bottles spontaneously explode and nothing I could find online really could explain it. I saw some explanations about uh, tempered safety glass on our TV stands. Sometimes will just shatter. My grandfather's barbershop bottles were not tempered, made out of tempered safety glass. The bottles didn't have forks or lids on them that somehow the pressure would be able to explain an explosion. Also, all of the bottles exploded at the exact same time. So even if there was some kind of malfunction in the glass, it doesn't explain that they would all break at the exact same time with such a loud, explosive noise. The kitchen had a window. I thought maybe, and I've heard of lightning strikes coming through windows the window was closed, you know, nothing else glass in the entire house broke. I have no explanation for it. That experience coupled with just having kind of like a lifetime of ghost experiences. I don't know. Um, I don't know how to explain it. I would love if one of the other call, you know, one of the other listeners is listening to this and 
maybe something similar has happened. Of course, it was very sad to share with my mom that all the bottles have broken. You know, my parents didn't have an explanation for it either. I'd left the bases on the shelf exactly how they were. I cleaned up the floor just for the safety of my animals, you know, for my dog and my cat, make sure they didn't cut themselves, but I didn't touch the bases. I just wanted my mom to see that it wasn't something like, you know, I just wanted to see if she maybe could have an explanation too. And she didn't, she was just very sad that this item from her father who had, who had passed away by the way, before I was born. So I never met him. Um, but from what I've heard, he was just one of those, uh, I guess he was huge. He was just this really giant, big guy, six, six. And he was just one of those guys that made friends with everybody and anybody very happy, very friendly. Everyone seemed to really love him. I would have really have liked to have been able to get to know him and meet him. And I was also really sad that one of these, you know, items from his barbershop, that those were gone now too. So anyways, I would love to hear if you have any scientific explanations for this, or if any of your listeners could maybe call in and offer an explanation. Um, if an explanation is given, I would love to be able to you know, answer any questions that anybody about the incident. Thank you so much for listening to the story and I'm going to keep listening to your podcast. You're doing a great job. Thanks, Derek. Thank you, Ariel. Now, full disclosure, this call was stated to play on last week's episode, but due to time issues, it was pushed to this week. Now, the next call, the following call, was the very next, for the most part, random selection I made. The following is Ben's call from nearby Illinois. Hey Derek, this is Ben calling from Rockford, Illinois. Just want to say first, uh, love your podcast. I never really listened to podcasts until I found yours. Anyways, or I want to talk about my uh, my uncle's house. Pretty much, there's been um, a lot of you know people in the family, myself included, who have uh, heard heard weird stuff or just you know had weird encounters there. You know, such as hearing uh, footsteps, things like that. Uh, I had uh, some strange occurrences happen when I was a kid there. There was uh, one time I was in the basement, and I was uh, down there by myself, actually. I was maybe, like, around six years old or something. And there was kind of a a pile-up of stuff laid out there, like toys and just uh, kind of random stuff. I was just down there kind of playing with something, and I'm... I don't know what I was doing, just kind of just playing by myself. And I remember there was this, there's this one toy. I think it was like a doll. Uh, it was in the pile. I continued playing, but uh, when I turned around after about a minute, I noticed that the doll had actually moved a few feet from where it was. I mean, I was just a kid and thought it was weird, but I didn't think too much of it. I mean, I did get creeped out a little bit and. I decided to actually go upstairs after that. There was uh, another occasion, actually, where my mom had actually told me that uh, as we were leaving my uncle's house, and I think I was a little bit younger at this point, maybe like four years old, we were uh, walking outside, and she was holding my hand as we were walking to the car, and then I stopped, and I looked up at at the ceiling of my uncle's house. She said that, I told her, or I asked her, Mom, who is that man on the roof? That when she told me that, I actually did remember that moment. And uh, I I remember I did see uh, someone up there on the roof. I'm not sure, uh, really, I don't remember what it looked like. I assume it was like just a kind of darkish figure, but I, I don't remember exactly what it was. It just looked like a man was up on the roof. And so she's like, what, what man? So she looks up there and, uh, she doesn't see anything, of course. And she actually, you know, walks around the house and, and searches to see if anyone is out there. And of course she doesn't find anything. So she kind of just, you know, shrugged it off, but she actually had a weird encounter herself. Uh, she goes to my uncle's house to kind of do housekeeping work there uh, while he's on the road since he's a truck driver. Uh, she went, she goes like a, a few days a week. So one week, my uncle was out of town. So there's no one in the house, but my mom, she has keys. She goes there and she cleans. So she went one day 
she, you know, cleaned uh, part of the house, and she came back the next day to clean the rest of the house. But when she got to my uncle's room, she noticed that there was some cologne bottles that had been dropped to the ground and broken. And, you know, she thought this was odd because she was there the day before, and uh, they were on the dress. The bottles were on the dresser. And so she came back the next day, and now these bottles were on the ground, shattered. And my uncle was out of town since he's a truck driver. He was gone for the week, and so there was no one at his house, no one staying there. My mom was the only one going there to clean. Yeah, that was pretty weird for her. I actually did do some some research. research. Uh, I went to the uh, website, diedinhouse.com, that you referred us to. Surprisingly, there there was no reported deaths there. However, uh, my mom did tell me that when they, well, when my uncle first moved in there and um, they were kind of cleaning out the attic, they had found a lot of kind of witchcraft stuff, um, like demonic imagery, uh, pictures, books on uh, witchcraft, kind of things of that nature. I do remember that. Uh, I went up to the attic a few times, and uh, it, it, you do get a creepy feeling up there. It's much different than the feeling you get from being in, in the rest of the house. Kind of, I don't know if that's just a figment of imagination or what, but it, it is pretty strange. And, uh, yeah, you know, just I don't know if there's much to those experiences, but just figured I thought I'd call and share. Um, yeah, thanks. Thank you, Ben. Now, as if that wasn't strange enough, check out the very next randomly selected call that I pulled from my folders. This one was submitted by Floyd, also in the state of Indiana. Hi, my name is Floyd. I'm from Fort Wayne, Indiana. My story goes back to 1966. I was three years old. I know I'm just not telling the story to somebody uh, well, my family's been hearing it all, all their lives, but anyway, um, 1966, uh, I'm sorry, it was 1968, not 66. My brother was just born. My brother was born in 1968. October 28th is when he was born, so it had to be in early, late October or early no, November, I guess. I was laying in the crib. With my sister, we were poor. Uh, my dad was fixing the furnace in the, in the mobile home. Had plastic over the top of the, the, the mobile home. And uh, my grandma was uh, sleeping down the hallway. She lived with us. And uh, everybody was asleep, and I heard the plastic ripped off the top of the roof. And my grandma was yelling for my father to wake up, and my dad did wake up. Whatever it was came in through the top of the roof, and walk up to the crib and this thing looked like i don't know if you ever seen the movie jeepers creepers but it looked like that um without the clothes um clothing but it had like these big bat wings probably about seven foot feet tall black in color but it had humanoid eyes i'm being told it's a moth man maybe it is maybe it isn't <clears throat> but uh it did take me out of the house i know that's where people I lose people right there when I say that. I don't remember it taking me out, but I remember flying off the top of the house with this humanoid, whatever it was, and it flew around the top of the trees. It was late at night, maybe, I don't know, 12, 1 o'clock in the morning, I'm guessing. Cold. I remember it cold. The, full, the moon was full. We flew really, really high above the trees. I remember seeing bird's eye view of everything, my home, everything and it was bright, bright outside. Um, I'm a little nervous about telling this story. Uh, people think I'm crazy, as it is, but um, but every time I tell this story, they, people want to lock me up or refer me to a psychiatrist, but I'm telling you the truth. My grandmother even, the next morning, told my dad that something was in the house, and she said it was horrifying, and she said, but she actually wet herself. I do have witnesses. I have a cousin that my grandma told the story to, and I try to tell my story to my cousin. Of course, I was only three years old, and you know, and 
I, I don't know what else to say. I uh, but when movie Jeepers Creepers came out, I did have a nervous breakdown when I saw that thing because I thought somebody else made a movie off of what I saw, and then next thing I know, the Mothman prophecies came out later. I did call another guy who is investigating one that's been cited in Chicago, I guess. I guess he's an investigator. But uh, this story needs to be told. I think so far I'm the only one that's been taken from this, taken, uh, abducted, I guess, you want to say, by this thing. I've been looking it up. I can't find anybody else that's been abducted by this thing. Um, this is where I lose people when they say that. You know, they believe me up until I say I'm an abducted. It's like, okay, it's some type of alien story, but uh, but no, this is truth. I'm scared. I'm I'm almost afraid it's going to come back. Now this being cited again in 2018, I'm a little scared. So or 19, I should say, I'm a little scared. But it is what it is. So. There's my story. You can use it. Do whatever you want to. Make fun of me. I don't care. I'm telling you the truth. Anyway, thank you and thank you for your time. Bye. Thank you, Floyd. So in the span of three calls, we went from broken bottles to other broken bottles. To a thing on the roof to yet another thing on the roof. And the second one was actually an abduction story. And, as if all that wasn't weird enough, all three came from the Indiana-Illinois region. But before I go getting all worked up, let's look at it this way. Maybe I got lucky with the subjects lining up. And, to be honest, each call has a 1 in 50's chance of being from Indiana or Illinois. Of course, that's safe for a few brave souls that foot the bill to pay from overseas and abroad. But anyone that knows me knows I'm not known for my math skills, so let's leave math completely out of it. Maybe there is something to these synchronicities. Or maybe we just make a bigger deal out of these coincidences because they're so meaningful to us. Whatever they are. Now, of course, I'm not going to let a potential Mothman sighting go undiscussed, if that is in fact what we're dealing with here. I should start off by saying I realize the connection to the Indiana-Illinois area as a current Mothman sighting hotspot. And I also see the connection to the synchronicities themselves in regards not only to the Mothman, but to the creature's best-known investigator, John Keel. That got me wondering, is there somehow a disaster tied to this series of synchronicities? Did something happen around the same time that this sighting took place that would maybe align. And lo and behold, I found something. A little less than a year after Floyd's sighting, there was, in fact, a disaster. An airline disaster that left 83 people dead. An Allegheny Airlines jet carrying 82 persons collided with a small private plane this afternoon about 10 miles southeast of Indianapolis. Both planes crashed to the ground. Apparently, there were no survivors. The commercial jetliner, Allegheny Flight 853, had originated in Boston. The plane made stops in Baltimore and Cincinnati and was approaching the Indianapolis airport in partly cloudy skies when the collision occurred. The Allegheny jet, a DC-9, crashed about 200 feet from a trailer park. Mrs. Frank Railing, the owner of the trailer park, gave this eyewitness report. She said... I heard the plane coming down real low. I looked up out of the office window and saw the plane just about miss the top of the office. Then it landed in the field a couple of hundred feet away. She then went on to say the debris and bodies are all over our park. The private plane was identified as a Cherokee 170. Today's crash was the third involving Allegheny Airlines in less than nine months. In one of the earlier crashes, 20 persons died. In the other, there were 11 deaths. So at this point, I was thinking, maybe there's a bit more to these synchronicities than I first thought. Maybe there is a message that's trying to be conveyed. Maybe there is something I should be paying attention to. That is, until Floyd called back. 
Hi, this is Floyd again. I forgot to add uh, my location on where I was at the time in Rolling Prairie, Indiana. It was 1960. I'm sorry, I said 68. It's 1969 was my brother was born. It was, like I said, around October, early November. Um, the creature was very tall, about seven foot tall, uh, black in color. I don't know if it had feathers or I don't know if it had fur, but it had a very skinny, like human noid head, like skelet, like a skeleton type um, looking creature. It had humanoid eyes, had big old bat wings, like skin. It was black skin, and the smell was horrendous that came from this thing. It looks like Jeepers Creepers, but people call it the Mothman. I don't know what it's called. I'm I'm starting to wonder if there is any more, if there is more than one creature being spotted. Maybe there's a couple of them out there. But like I said, if you guys want to use the store, that's great. Nah. Um, but I would like to let people know that I was abducted. That's the most important part. I was abducted. It returned. Oh, sorry. It flew around with me, and I was in the air. And when it came back, I remember it was very, very cold. I didn't have any shoes on. I didn't, I don't know why. I, a pair of pants, maybe a shirt. I don't know. We had landed on top of a mobile home. It was an old mobile home. Um, and I remember when we had landed on top of the mobile home, I could hear the crackling of the tin on the on the on the on the roof. It had it had released me just for a second, and then as I started walking, it grabbed me. And then I don't remember anything like after that. Like it had a power to put me to sleep. That's probably why I don't remember getting out of the house. It brought me back, and next thing I know, I wake back up in my own bed. My grandma's still yelling, and uh, my dad not waking up until later. Finally, my dad did get up and walk into the my grandma's bedroom, and she was frantic, and she was trying to explain to him what had happened, and he looked in at me like, well, he's still here, so I don't know if she's going to get taken out, uh, but anyways, that's the story, and um, like I said, I, I live in Fort Wayne, Indiana right now, and uh I'm telling people about it. Some people believe me. Some people think I'm just off my rocker, which that's fine. Uh, maybe I am. So anyway, thank you for your time, and uh, good luck with uh, your stories. Bye. So obviously this second call changes at least the synchronicities with the tragedy. The plane crash seemed to occur roughly a month before the actual sighting. But I did find it ironic that both Floyd's call and the ABC News clip that I used both mentioned mobile homes. Now, back to the sighting. Now, the OG Mothman, the Mothman from the late 60s, was reported to carry off dogs. One was reported to be a child-sized German Shepherd. So, at the very least, so at the very least, that is something in the way of defense for Lloyd's claim. But as far as the overall claim is concerned, it is a rather sizable claim. And if I understand it correctly, a hole was ripped through the roof of the actual home. I feel an event like that would be newspaper-worthy at least. Is there an article out there somewhere that may lend to the claims? In addition, perhaps there exists a claim from 1969 of someone witnessing a winged creature with a child in his claws. I did a brief search, but came up empty-handed on that one. Now, whether it be Mothman attack, disguised alien abduction a sleep paralysis nightmare, or something beyond imagination. The story itself is top-notch. And that's where we're going to leave it, as an excellent story. So if anyone else in the Indiana-Illinois area has had any strange encounters with flying creatures, Mothman-esque creatures, especially in the mid to late 60s, let us know. I'd like to see if maybe there's a flap that was undiscovered in that area. Or perhaps a tie-in to something we've yet to even imagine. Thank you again, Floyd, for taking the time to share your story. It certainly sounded like it took a toll for you to share that with us. And that's going to do it for this episode. I just want to thank you all one more time for three amazing years. There are big things in store for monsters among us, so keep the calls coming, keep your eyes open... And as always, keep it spooky. Monsters Among Us is written and produced by me, Derek Hayes. 
Additional support was provided by Addie Lloyd, Warren Pon Abbott, and Tony Bell. All audio used in this production is done so under the protection of fair use. And music for this episode was provided by Mayu and Coag Music. Thank you all for listening, and until next week. around, didn't you? Well, lucky for you, because you get to listen to one more story. Now, I'm curious how this synchronicity thing is actually playing out, so I randomly selected a story from my bank, just to kind of see if there are actually any coincidences that seem to line up. Now, I have not yet read this story, so this will be a surprise to even me. The following story was submitted by Paul in the state of California. Hello Derek, my name is Paul and this story takes place on a mountain slope in Southern California. I'm the co-founder of a small paranormal investigation group which has been active for the past seven years. On this particular day, five years ago, a friend of ours had told us of a location of a monument to a prospector who was tragically caught and buried alive during a landslide in 1877. He also told us of urban legends surrounding this monument which included the usual stories of the man not being a prospector at all, but an axe murderer or child killer, killed and buried outside of town. After some quick research, we found out that he was just a prospector who was trapped in the wrong place at the wrong time and died under a landslide. We also discovered back in the 1950s the original road running by this monument was washed out and they moved his monument to accommodate for a new road being built. With this information, we headed out for a preliminary investigation, only coming back if we were to capture something. After a short drive with our friend pointing the way, we found the location. It was off a main highway in the foothills of an approach to a large mountain. Immediately, we noticed the nature of the surrounding slopes, which were mainly made up of loose shale and equally loose boulders. We located the monument, which was hidden off the highway about 75 feet up a small brush-lined slope. The monument itself is nothing more than a limestone grave marker which says Jacob Shiner, 1827 to 1877. On the ground is a cement outlined square about the size of a grave. From our research, we discovered that this location had been investigated before by other groups. However, we knew this was not the original location. One particular question that came to us was maybe this poor prospector would like his final resting spot relocated again or simply acknowledged. So armed with video cameras, digital recorders going, and EM pumps to charge the area, my hunting partner Ray asked the following question. But first, he took out his compass and faced due north. Now he asked, Jacob, I'm facing due north. If I'm in the hands of a clock... I'm at 12 o'clock. What direction are you? On the digital recorder closest to Ray came a very clear response of three. Now the direction of three puts a possible location out near the road, but remember, this was just a preliminary investigation. We wouldn't know this until we reviewed the evidence at home. After we asked several more questions we began to take color and infrared pictures. After we finished those, we began to break down our equipment and call it a day, when suddenly a loud metal-on-rock clink happened right in front of us. This sounded like a rock pick. We quickly turned on our video camera and caught it several more times. I scanned the area around us while it was happening, looking for the source, such as a rock climber or a hiker. But the sound was ground-level 
about 10 feet in front of us. Excited, we headed home and reviewed the evidence, hearing the clinking and the EVP of three. We also noticed an image in one of our infrared photos which looked to us like a woman in 1800s period dress, holding an infant in her arms. The woman's eyes were black. This photo is up for skeptics review, but this is what we think we see. With that, we headed back out the following weekend. This time, we headed across the road opposite of the monument. We asked the same directional time question, getting an EVP saying 11, which would put poor Jacob directly under the parking lot to his own monument. Again, we finished the investigation, taking photographs, following our procedure of always taking three in a row of the same view when Ray snapped three infrared in the same area of the clink sound. Upon review of those photos at home, we saw something truly amazing. There in the photo is the apparition of a man about 50 years old, wearing a mid to late 1800s period hat. You can see his bent arm, the wrinkled shirt by his elbow, his knuckles on his hand, and the best of all. To us, it looks like he's smiling. Also in the photo, it looks like he is leaning up against a post, though there are no posts there. Though we have no way of proving it, we believe what we are looking at is no other than Jacob Shiner, the prospector. For a long time, I have looked at the series of photos where you can see the image materialize. For the longest time, I could not figure out his pose until one day it hit me. This apparition is actually up on the back of a horse and he is pulling the horse's head to the right. The post, I thought, he was leaning on was actually his own leg on the side of the saddle. You can actually see the V-shaped chest strap on the horse, which holds the saddle in place. Thank you, Derek, for an amazing podcast that so many enjoy. I will be submitting more stories in the near future. Paul and Ray, Espiritus Venator Paranormal. Well, thank you, Paul and Ray. It sounds like you guys had quite an eventful investigation. Now, Paul was kind enough to include a handful of links, so I'm going to go ahead and post all of those in the show notes for tonight's episode. I vaguely remember hearing something about this particular story, and I have a funny feeling that the location is quite close to me, so this is something that I'm going to try to explore a little deeper when the weather finally turns for the better. So thank you again, Paul and Ray, for taking the time to share your experiences And thank you for sticking around to the end of Monsters Among Us. Have a good night. It all starts with an invitation to experience Lexus. To get behind the wheel. To go out on the open road. To feel a rush of adrenaline. It starts as an invitation to drive a Lexus vehicle. But it becomes an exhilarating experience. The Invitation to Lexus sales event. Your invitation is always open. But the offers only last through March 31st. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Click the banner to discover more.